1: So we're going to talk today about how the Internet can be used to boost voter turnout, which is much lower in the U.S. than in many other countries. But there's actually one place where this kind of effort would be totally unnecessary, and I've just
0: been there. Let me take a wild guess. Australia. Yep. People don't have to
1: vote in Australia, but they do have to show up at the polling station on an
0: election day as part of their civic duty. I want to ask you more about that and what else you learned on your trip to Australia. But first, a nationwide push to use the internet to encourage higher voter turnout. Seth Flaxman of
2: Democracy Works. The cost of voting needs to be lower than the perceived benefit and so one the first things we do is we try to lower the cost make it easier and then the second is social if you know people are voting and other people are voting then you're more likely to vote and then it's habitual if we can get you to vote twice in a row early in your life you're likely to develop a voting habit
1: Our show is about fixes. Yeah, how to make the world a better place. How How do we we fix fix it? it? How do we fix it? Our mission, says the nonprofit group Democracy Works, is to make voting a simple, seamless experience for all Americans so that no one misses an election.
0: A lot of people want to vote, but then they forget to do it, or they don't get registered to vote. Democracy Works is a team of software developers, policy wonks of the type we like, and civic organizers who say they are working to upgrade the infrastructure of democracy.
1: Their best-known project is something called TurboVote, which is being used by millions of people already, to remind them through emails and text messages where to vote and what's on the
0: ballot. Richard, this is one that you had to do without me. Somehow you muddled through, but I'll be back at the other end to discuss it with you a little bit. You talked with co-founder and CEO of Democracy Works, Seth Flaxman, at their headquarters in Brooklyn
2: to find out about the group's goals. We think about it as voting needs to fit the way we live. Um, And so there's a few different tools we've built to try to do that. The first thing we built was TurboVote. You go online TurboVote.org and sign up. And then uh, TurboVote sends you text message and email notifications to help you with every date and deadline to like, vote or vote by mail, register to vote, whatever you need to vote in all of your elections.
1: Is there evidence that this works?
2: Yeah. A lot of the evidence comes from just user research and usability testing where we know that if you improve a design, it can improve and change behaviors. And so it's the exact same thing. Improve the user experience for voting, and you can make it easier and more people will do it.
1: In what kinds of ways have you improved it?
2: So the census surveys voters and non-voters every two years and asks non-voters, why didn't you vote? And so there's all this data on non-voters. And, and also folks who aren't registered. And every two years, the answer comes back that there's a collection of process issues keeping people from voting. The biggest ones being forgot, like that could be forgot about the deadline, forgot about the, the election the, date. The deadline to The register. deadline to send in a registration form, the deadline to send in an absentee ballot application, forgot that an election was happening at all, is so common, didn't have transportation a disability, a sickness, just all these process issues. And voting isn't fitting the way we live. So that's how we think about our mission, which is, okay, technology is real good at process. How could we solve each of these different process issues for people using technology? And so the easiest one is just making sure people have the information they need, like good, accurate, timely information delivered to them via text or an email that will help them vote in all of their elections. So that's the most important way that we're helping people. Is delivering like timely, sort of a personalized information, like tomorrow is your school board election. Here is where your polling place is, or tomorrow is the deadline to return your vote by mail. So that's that's the number one way we're helping. So,
1: how did Democracy Works get started?
2: So it it started from my personal experience. I was. I was at the Kennedy School studying public policy at, at Harvard. Harvard and I, and I was um, it was almost a decade ago now, a little over a decade ago. I was obsessed with why the internet had not yet revolutionized the public sector. Um, and had that on my mind when I realized over the course of that first semester that I had just missed three different elections for different, dumb process issues.
1: In other words, you didn't vote.
2: I didn't vote three times in a row in three different types of elections. And before I had my epiphany, I was just going online thinking, oh, the Internet must have solved this. I just need to sign up for something that will tell me what to do to vote in everything.
1: Just to make it easier for people.
2: Yeah, just to like, you know, and I I remember like one of the elections, I was still trying to vote. Uh, By mail back in New York, and I missed the deadline to put in my application. Another one, I was trying to re register, change my registration address, and I missed the deadline to change my registration address. And then the third time, I'd finally re registered, but there was a sort of side street I walked down on a sandwich board out on the street saying, Today is election day, but it had been too late. And I was like, So this is it. You find out a local election is happening by going down a random street and seeing a sandwich board. And that's how our democracy works. And a
1: lot of people don't realize the the voting system varies from one not necessarily state to the next, but one county to the next.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, you know, because of federalism, states are uh, in charge of running elections. And there's an election director in every state. But in the majority of those states... It's really the counties who are doing the lifting of making sure the machines are set up, choosing the polling sites um, and but every state is different that's that's the number one thing to know about how elections work in the United States
1: so that begs the question how did you get started on this?
2: You have to be sort of a crazy social entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to take on this sort of challenge.
1: Yeah, because there isn't necessarily any money in it.
2: No. Yeah. I mean, this is why we decided to be a nonprofit, too, um, was there? it didn't make sense uh, as a for-profit. And ultimately, we wanted to make sure that we were, at the end of the day, always focused on serving our mission, uh, the voters, and uh, all the other stakeholders we have to work with. The way we got started, we did two things. First thing I did is I reached out to a classmate of mine who was one of the sort of technologists in my program, Catherine Peters, who became my co-founder, and said, like, how hard would it be if we wanted to build this reminder service? And, uh, you know, the famous last words that we still remember is like, oh, that shouldn't be that hard. (laughs) And um, we uh, decided to do a pilot in the 2010 midterms, and we had 300 Boston University students sign up for it and then surveyed those students afterwards. Like, how likely would you have been to vote had it been for the service or not? And 30% said they probably wouldn't have voted had it not been for the service. And you're we like, that's crazy because this thing was so ugly. It was like held together with duct tape. Um, it was just like a pilot. And 30% said they probably wouldn't have voted. Like, we're on something. We should invest in this. So then we joined all these business plan competitions, lost all of them. Because back at the time, people were like, "This just doesn't feel like an urgent problem."
1: Turnout, and, yeah, and turn getting out, democracy, young people to vote. and
2: yeah. Um, yeah. you know, upgrading the infrastructure of our democracy wasn't on anyone's mind. So it was it was hard to get started.
1: And, and then I suppose one of the really big obstacles is what we talked about: all the different voting systems. It's it's got to be very localized and specific for each person, right?
2: Yeah, it's difficult to build. Yeah. Um, and but at the same time, it's what's needed to do modern voter engagement. When you're on the Internet, people need a single national website that they can go to to get help with uh, their work. Uh, People are coming to your website from every different state. So we were trying to fill this gap, even at a college campus, for example, in that first 300 students. We needed TurboVote to work in every state because even with those 300 students, we basically served a student from every single state on the site. Boy, it must have...
1: Pulled your hair out a little bit it was early going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, exactly. So, so how much better is TurboVote today than it was even two years ago for the midterm elections in 2018 or four years ago uh, with the last presidential? Yeah, so
2: we, we've grown dramatically over the past two years where we scaled from 1 million to 7 million subscribers since the essentially beginning of 2018 until now. And – Uh, One of the biggest things that we've been doing is just focusing on serving what are now just like percentages of the entire American electorate.
1: Do you hope and imagine that in the course of this year, running up to November, that you're going to have a heck of a lot more people sign up? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Absolutely. That's what we're preparing for. And at the end of the day, we think every American is going to want some sort of service as like a concierge helping them vote in all their elections. Even people who say they never miss elections sign up for TurboVote just to get the reminders.
1: One of the reasons why youth turnout is, is often very low is a lot of young people move fairly frequently in their early adult years. What happens?
2: So every time we text you, we say we're reminding you about an election for this address. If you've moved, click here and tell us.
1: What about the we factor? If your friends are voting, you're much more likely to vote.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So voting is this totally complicated behavior in that it's somewhat rational, it's a little bit social, and it's habitual. I mean, a few other things too, but those are three big ones. In terms of the rational part, the cost of voting needs to be lower than the perceived benefit. And so one, the first things we do is we try to lower the cost, make it easier. And then the second is social. If you know people are voting and other people are voting, then you're more likely to vote. And then it's habitual. If you can get you to vote twice in a row early in your life, you're likely to develop a voting habit. Um, And it's also an identity. If you can start identifying as a voter, as opposed to telling someone to go vote, you tell them you're a voter. They're also more likely to vote. So there's all these levers that you can pull. And what we've found is that everything helps a little bit. Like there isn't a magic bullet with that sort of messaging. And so we have to take a very holistic approach. And so we really focus on the the elections managed by the state, but then, uh, for example, we're the source of the nation's polling place data, our voting information project. When you Google, where do I vote? All of that data uh, comes from our work with the states.
1: Wow, well, tell me about that. that's fascinating. Um, so, okay, yeah, so simply, yeah. I, wherever I live in the United States, I, I go to Google, and you, you ask, where do I vote? And, and they, that, they tell you, and that comes from your information. Yeah,
2: our, our work with the states provides that data.
1: That is a, a service that you're doing which isn't specifically called TurboVote. Yeah, no, right? that,
2: so we have, we have a suite of programs that we yeah, are so, so building what, to help improve uh, voting and not just TurboVote. That's the main one people know because people sign up for it themselves. Um, but it's also people see it sometimes when they go to our site, gettothepolls.com. So, that's the site that Facebook will embed on their website on election day, and a lot of other major sites will embed uh, on election day to help people get to the polls. Then, at the same time, sort of moving away from polling places, we are trying to help people vote more seamlessly and reliably by mail, um, and to help states and counties adopt voting by mail. So, we have a piece of technology called Ballot Scout, which tracks vote-by-mail ballots, sometimes called absentee ballots, uh, through the mail, just like you would an Amazon package. So you can get text messages about your ballot being uh, received, that it's on its way. Election administrators can track, oh, like the ballot's lost in this postal facility. We have to get that figured out. Um, and as more and more Americans are moving to vote-by-mail every year, um, trying to make sure that that's a like really modern and good experience for people.
1: It's How Do We Fix It? I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. This episode is funded with a grant from Solutions Journalism Network, and it's part of their initiative, Renewing Democracy, to encourage reporting about how people and institutions are trying to reinvigorate democracy in communities across the country. Selling a little or a lot?
0: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today.
1: It's that sound again.
0: Recommendations. Jim, what have you been listening to? Well, you know, I'm a big fan of country music, roots music, Americana, and there's an artist not that new, but he might be new to many listeners named Tyler Childers, and what he does is sort of the opposite of the big pop country that you'll see on a lot of the country music awards. It's a stripped-down sound, closer to bluegrass or a singer-songwriter approach, something you'd hear, you know, on a back porch down south or in a roadhouse, not in a, a big arena. Great songwriting, deep lyricism, presented in a very direct, simple style. He's on tour right now with Sturgill Simpson. That's a great bill. They're going to be all over the country. I really recommend you get out and see them. Tyler Childers.
1: Great. Now more from Seth Flaxman of Democracy Works. Tell us about your mission. Tell us about why that's needed. Why we have a problem here that needs to be fixed. How do we fix it?
2: Yeah. Um, so the mission is to improve uh, civic participation um, by making a more sort of seamless and modern voting experience for voters and also with election administrators. And uh, the reason why it's necessary, it goes back to sort of my original interest a decade ago and like why isn't the internet revolutionizing the public sector. It's because there's a lot of money to be made here. There isn't money to be made Building a seamless voting experience that helps every voter vote in all of their elections. And there isn't anyone with a real institutional incentive to be the person who fixes that. So especially in a system like ours, where every state is in charge of running elections, no one's built a national site to try to make this voting experience feel modern for everybody. Um, and so we've like stepped into that gap. And
1: how far along the road do you feel you are? In other words, yes, you've got 7 million people signed up so far. The numbers will grow substantially this year. Do you feel that by 2024, it will be much better?
2: You know, I imagine a world where like every eligible voter in the country, over 230 million Americans, is getting a reminder about when, where, and how to vote in every one of their elections, and so we have this personalized experience for being a voter in American democracy.
1: Are most people who signed up relatively young?
2: Yes. Over 60% are millennials or younger uh, on the service. So essentially reflecting um, the folks who are opting in to sign up for TurboVote are the people who most need it, uh, because they're not uh, voting at the same rates as the national average. Yeah,
1: the turnout levels for millennials and younger are often miserably low. Do you think in 2020 that you will make a substantial difference to the number of people turning out, especially uh, younger voters? Oh,
2: absolutely. We're now at, so to give you, to do a thought experiment, if you want to think about, you know, what is, five points of impact nationally, if you're going to increase turnout by five percentage points, that's 15 million voters. Um, so if you look at the number of folks our programs are now reaching, we have seven million on TurboVote, and that's going to grow. We're going to have over 100 million people using our polling place data. And we also have a growing number of voters who were tracking their ballots and improving their vote-by-mail experience. And so the numbers add up to, like, you could see how we get to 15 million voters who were maybe on the fence about voting or maybe would have encountered an issue and we're helping get them across the finish line. So we're now in the realm of improving national turnout in sort of full percentage points.
0: It's pretty
1: exciting. Uh, A final question. You've told me that... A little bit about the origin story of Democracy Works that you were at the Kennedy School of Government and you thought, why isn't the internet making it easier for people to vote? But what about your personal passion? I mean, how did you come to that point of view of really feeling strongly that we've got to do something?
2: Yeah. I think the turning point for me was actually the Proposition Eight election in California. Which was the marriage equality state amendment, and that was a scary election for me personally. And I was like, "Votes can happen that take your rights away." Why and,
1: scary for you personally? Well,
2: uh, I wasn't married to my husband yet, but um, we were together at the time, and uh, it was a sign for me of just like how fragile a democracy can be. And even people said it was, it was "Oh, historically high turnout, sixty percent." And I was like, "Really?" that doesn't seem so great to me. And like if someone's going to take my rights away, I at least want there to be 80% turnout. <laughs> like, I, I want to make sure that this is like a really legitimate election that represents everyone's perspectives. And um, that was not a direct line, but that was the seed for me for thinking about the health of American democracy uh, back in 2008 at a time when most people were like, everything's fine.
1: Thank you very much.
2: (laughs) You're welcome. I mean, obviously, I I do this because I care really deeply about it.
0: So Richard, once again, you managed to get through an interview without me interrupting you the whole time. It was probably somewhat liberating. Two weeks in a row, Jim. The
1: last time was
0: in Australia when I was uh, asking questions about coronavirus. So I really thought that what Seth is doing at Democracy Works is is exactly what this show is about. It's finding a problem and coming up with practical non-ideological solutions. I love the fact that his turbo vote program is a website. It's not an app. You sign up and you get a text or an email saying, hey, here's how you register. Here's the deadline for registering. Here's how you vote early. Here's where the polling places are in your neighborhood.
1: And part of the strength also is there is no mention of what the candidates stand for so you don't get into that whole thorny issue of whether they're
0: biased. Yeah, how did you define this issue or that issue? There's a blogger I like named Ann Althouse, a retired law professor. She always talks about what she calls cruel neutrality, just not framing things in an ideological way. I also love the phrase he used, which is so familiar to me from working in the digital field. He said, we want to improve the user experience. And I love how they've just stripped it down to these very, very basic elements. And then it's up to the user to make use of that.
1: And speaking of making use of that, we've just had the first two votes for Presidential candidates, Democratic caucuses, a fiasco in Iowa, and then most recently in New Hampshire. And I was somewhat encouraged in New Hampshire that the majority of Democratic voters for a party that's said to be tilting left were actually for more moderate candidates. Yeah,
0: the rise of Amy Klobuchar is great news for all the people like me who who think that the far left progressive policies would would be pretty disastrous for our country. Um, We'll see what happens. There are so many comparisons of Bernie today and Trump back in 2016, where most Republicans did not like Trump. People forget this now. But there were so many people in the race that he kept winning the plurality. And after, after the first three or four contests. It was too late for, even if everyone had dropped out except for, say, Marco Rubio or Ted Cruz, it was too late for anybody to catch up.
1: And actually, that could happen, especially with uh, the very poor showing by Elizabeth Warren. Previously, the progressive vote had had been split between two candidates, but now you have one progressive versus a bunch of
0: more moderate candidates. Yeah, but you know what's cool? A lot of the Elizabeth Warren vote went to Amy Klobuchar. You would think it would be ideological. Well, we'll go to the other progressive. A lot of voters, they'd like to see a woman president. I think it's, in a weird way, kind of encouraging that people are showing that flexibility. And
1: I think that one thing that comes out of that is klobuchar's emphasis on character which is a big part of her appeal
0: and i don't think our listeners expect us to be doing the cnn msnbc wrap up after every <laughs> Please, no. primary uh, there's more than that, enough of that but it certainly speaks to a lot of the issues that we're interested in on this show and would love to hear from all of you how you weigh in on these issues and if there are topics you'd like to see us bring up on how do we fix it And speaking of topics, Richard, I mentioned your trip to Australia. You managed to record a great episode down there when you were ostensibly on vacation.
1: And another thing I did, and and this was a political wonk's dream, is I went to Prime Minister's Question Time in Canberra, and it was just sort of interesting to see how, at least in Australia... On the surface, politics appears to be more civil.
0: Let me, let me stop here a second. For those of our listeners who didn't grow up in Britain like you did, maybe aren't as familiar with the parliamentary system.
1: Right. And, and that's the prime minister's question time. Yeah, so, so how does it work? Yeah. The prime minister is the leader of the government – and there is an official opposition. And each week, or sometimes twice a week, the prime minister faces questions, both from opponents and supporters. And Sometimes it can get pretty rowdy.
0: Certainly in Britain it does.
1: Yeah, yeah, and it does in Australia too. And it was kind of interesting, though, that you had the opposition baying at at the conservative coalition government and, and sharply criticizing them over their response to, to bushfires and their lack of policy on climate change. But when they got kind of out of hand and were yelling too much, the speakers simply expelled several members of the opposition Labour Party from the session. And they just got up, smiled and walked out.
0: Did you find in traveling around, you were at the sort of earlier days of the coronavirus epidemic, but there they are kind of on the front doorstep of Asia and Australia with enormous amount of travel and, and trade. Um were people starting to get a little bit freaked out about it?
1: No, and that was sort of interesting. I felt that the way that debates are conducted in Australia is a little less kind of fraught and maybe maybe even hysterical than, than here. It seemed to be a bit, bit calmer. There was a sense that this is a problem, we'll deal with it, it'll hit our economy for a while, but we'll get over it and we'll get through it.
0: Richard, I think those glasses you're wearing are a little (laughs) rose-tinted. Perhaps. I I still was
1: impressed by by being there. It's a great country. This
0: is How Do We Fix It?
1: I'm Richard Davies. And I'm Jim Meggs. And our producer is Miranda Schaefer. We're a production of Davies Content. We make digital audio podcasts for companies and nonprofits. And you can find us at our website, DaviesContent.com. And our show, How Do We Fix It?, is at HowDoWeFixIt.me. Thanks for listening.